Major support for Louisiana Eats comes from Zatarain's Creole Mustard. Add it to everything, from backyard burgers and hot dogs to potato salad and coleslaw. From our studios in the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans, this is Louisiana Eats. I'm Poppy Tooker. Michelle Nishan, founder of Wholesome Wave, is a 21st century American revolutionary. During his lifetime, the actor Paul Newman was a big fan of Michelle's work. The two collaborated closely to effect major change in food justice. Michelle joins us on this week's show with an inside look at social justice through food in contemporary America. Then, Slow Food USA's Richard McCarthy introduces us to Ugandan agronomist Edward Muchibi, who's working to revolutionize the food system in Africa. Edward is architect of the 10,000 Gardens Project, which has introduced small farms to schools and homes across the continent, while raising awareness about the value of African biodiversity. And finally, Winnie Stein of the Moosewood Collective reflects on how a small band of hippies came together in the early 70s, forever changing the role that vegetables play on our plates. We're making waves and changing ways on this week's Louisiana Eats. Hi, I'm Michelle Nishan. I'm CEO of Wholesome Wave, a chef, and I love local food. Michelle Nishan has spent over 30 years advocating for a more healthful, sustainable food system. A three-time James Beard award-winning chef and author, Michelle is often cited as one of the most influential food policymakers of the past decade. Originally from Illinois, Michelle's relationship with food began on his grandfather's farm, where he spent many a summer sweating beneath the warm rays of the Midwestern sun. My mom and dad used to send us down every summer because they worked hard and were lower middle class and struggled uh, with income, so they would send us down for six to eight weeks every summer to work what was left of my grandpa's farm because he couldn't afford the farmhands. She wanted us to learn chores and how to deal with animals and get fresh air and all that good jazz. And then she and my dad would take on extra work in the summer back home. So until my grandpa passed when I was 16 years old, that's how I spent my summertime. So I did kind of grow up on the farm. Those summers stuck with him. Just like anyone else who's done farm work, Michelle developed an unwavering work ethic. It would be put to the test at a relatively young age at a time when most of us are planning to leave home. Michel found himself in a similar situation, but he didn't have a choice. So my mom and dad fell on hard times. Right when I was graduating high school, my older brother was graduated for a year, and they had to downsize uh, and sell the house, and we had a younger brother and a younger sister, and my mom and dad had the talk with Steve and I that we really needed to go out on our own. 
And my mom looked to me because I was the one who loved food. All my aunts and uncles could cook and pickle and can and hunt and butcher and all that stuff. And she said, we're going to go get you a job in a restaurant because at least you'll eat. <laughs> she said, you get two meals. You get one at, at the beginning of the shift and you'll get one at the end of the shift. And, and at least I know that you'll be fed. So my first job was as a breakfast cook at a truck stop on the Illinois-Wisconsin border. Uh, called Center's Truck Stop on Russell Road. It's still there to this day. So that's how I got into the business. One thing led to another, and because I knew how to butcher and cook and all of those other things, I moved very, very rapidly. And you found that you loved it. You must have loved it. I absolutely loved it. I adored it to the depth of my soul. At the time, I, I really wanted to be a musician because my mother was also very musical. She was a torch singer and very, very talented. Um, but there was just no money in it. And certainly where there's no money, there's no food. So when I first got the job in the restaurant, I was a little reluctant, but then I started noticing a lot of similarities between the creative process of cooking and the creative process of musing, the collaborative process of that. If you wanna be in a band, if you don't get along with everybody, the music's not gonna be great. When it is great, the adoring public, whether it's concert goers or people sitting in a restaurant, really show genuine appreciation. So I, I, I just very, very quickly decided I was going to be a chef someday. At the start of the 1980s, Michel became one of the very first chefs to seek out ingredients for his dishes from local farmers, well before the farm-to-table movement would become a national trend. This journey was not without its obstacles. Well, you know, it, it's interesting. I did it assuming that it would be easier than it was because of the way I had been raised. And even, you know, in Des Plaines, Illinois, my mom dug up the whole back and side yard and planted a garden. We canned, we pickled, we did our thing. I just thought that was normal. As a naive kid, I thought it was normal. I had no idea that it was a, a nearly extinct culture, right? I had no idea. So I started working in restaurants and my, my big idea, my bright idea is I'll be a chef someday and I'll be a better chef than anybody else because the food coming in the back door of these restaurants is absolute crap. Pink tomatoes, perfectly round, tastes like not tomatoes. Um, so I'll just go find farmers and I'll buy food from them and then I'll kick all the other chefs' ass, right? So I got my first gig as a chef at the Fleur de Lis in Milwaukee, Wisconsin in 1981. And I immediately did the short 20 minute drive out to Oconomowoc where all the farms are, knocking on doors, getting doors slammed in my face seeing all the corn, seeing all the soy, assuming there has to be a family vegetable plot somewhere, and found that it wasn't there. And I remember, you know, this one young family invited me in for coffee, and the wife had just inherited the farm from her parents, and she said, you know, until I was like eight years old, we used to grow specialty crops, she called them. But we went to corn and soy. But you know, there's this asparagus patch down by the access road, it's just lasted all these years, take all you want. <laughs> so it was my first farm to table acquisition ever, but it was also my only one that year. Nobody was growing anything and it shocked me. It shocked me, so I just, I kind of got angry first at myself that I was so naive as to think that all I had to do was find a farm and I'd find good food. And I became friends with these young farmers who said the money isn't in corn and soy and telling me the woes that they and their farming communities were going through. I'm like, someone's got to do something about this. And I didn't know, you know, Alice was doing it 
in California. Nora Puyam was doing it in the mid-Atlantic in DC. But we were all these lone little kind of islanders out there believing that food was that important and trying to get it done. And we would make 20, 30 phone calls and have very little of, of the food that we were serving in the restaurant come from any kind of a local farmer. It was really a wasteland at that time. And then it, it becomes a little easier and you are accessing local food. What was the customer's reaction to the fact that you had some local food from down the dirt road coming in the back door? Well, the, the first was like, they didn't want it. They didn't want it. They, they thought I was like some kind of a weird hippie. They're like, you're bizarre, man. You're picking your own asparagus. We had to stop talking about it because I wasn't going to stop trying to buy that food. I wasn't going to do it. I knew it was better. I knew I could trust these people. I could go and see how it was being grown and I could have conversations. I knew enough about farming to have an intelligent conversation with somebody in the way that they were growing stuff. And I'm like, I'm not going to not do that. I owe it to my grandpa. You know, I owe it to my mom. I owe it to my dad. We're just not going to talk about it. So people would be like, oh my God, this is the most amazing asparagus in the world. What did you do to it? I'm like, ah, kitchen secret, you know, Thank or you. this, ama- this, this pork was like amazing. What'd you do? I have some really great staff in the back and boy, do they know how to do pork. You just couldn't talk about it. People thought that all the produce that came in boxes and they would see people in the grocery store in the produce aisle unloading these heads of romaine lettuce from a box that it had gone through some kind of miraculous process that made it clean and pure (laughs) you know so it was really a heavy lift so not not only were we you know making uncountable phone calls to have like five percent of our stuff come from local producers we had to lie about it by omission we were not being genuine and it was weird you know so so i call those kind of like semi-dark ages and i'm glad they're over (laughs) track the change all right okay so all right so i i would say about 15 years into it i actually was getting to a point of what i felt was a modicum of success from the systems perspective because i could make the same amount of phone calls and have like 40 to 50 percent of my stuff come from within a reasonable distance so that was the other kind of semi-dark ages because i could talk about it now and people would say oh how interesting and then just not even seem like it registered beyond how interesting right and i would go out to tables and talk to people about it and try to get them all enthusiastic about it and stuff like that and they're like well, I really like having raspberries in February. <laughs> it's just, you know, just, so it just, I remember, you know, going through this phase of coming home to Lori, my beautiful wife, and saying, honey, I don't know if I can keep doing this. Nobody cares. Mm-hmm. You know, we learned that there was this kind of underground movement of us. Yes, you all were a cult. Yes, it's, <laughs> yeah, it's really so freaky, but people still think that way of us. Um, so it's, it's like there's this movement but people weren't caring. I'm like, we're really doing this for future generations. And we would talk amongst ourselves and say, so we're going to just accept and we're going to bite this bullet. We're doing this for future generations and we're going to keep doing stuff that is really hard to do that people just don't care about because we believe that it's important, right? So, you know, all of a sudden, 10 years ago, boom, it started becoming important. Farmers market started popping up all over the damn place. And I think a lot of it had to do with 
people making the connection between food and human health. That was the big public awareness thing that happened. And it happened to me, you know, 20 years ago at that same time that I was convinced we were doing it for future generations is when my son Chris, who is now 25, was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes and the doctor went to great pains to tell me that what we did with his diet would have more to do with his long-term outcome than anything else. So I came to the understanding of the connection between food and human health. But what was interesting is that kind of like Jane Q public would go out and start shopping at farmers markets and then just saying, I don't care if anybody studies how I feel, but I just feel better. My food tastes better. I feel really great about the people I'm buying my food from. I've made new friends. There's direct human connection, this connection of trust, the culture that comes around it, the fact that from an economic perspective, they're spending money with farmers that live a very short distance away who are coming back into town and spending their money. And, you know, it's just community that comes about with that sort of food exchange yeah in like real culture and sense of place so uh, 10 years ago just it like popped and now we're at a point where we can make like a half a dozen to a dozen phone calls and have a hundred percent of everything in our cooler and after 35 years and with all these amazing young men and women coming out and really nailing farm to table now it's just kind of like I wake up ready to go and I go to bed and fall right asleep it's pretty cool That's Michelle Nishan, whose childhood on a Midwestern farm inspired him to pioneer the farm-to-table movement and change American food policy. When we come back from a short break, Michelle reveals how he became a social justice food revolutionary. Stay with us. I'm Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with major support from Rouse's Markets, from Camellia Brand, Beans Done Right, a New Orleans tradition since 1923, and from Cafe B, featuring contemporary Creole cuisine with an emphasis on fresh Gulf seafood, served in a classic old Metairie setting. Lunch, dinner, Sunday brunch, and private events on Metairie Road. Do you have some Louisiana Eats on your mind? We'd like to hear about it, so we've opened a phone line to take your calls. Leave us a message at 504-867-9128 or send us an email to louisianaeats at poppytooker.com. And now, back to Louisiana Eats. If you're just joining us, we've been speaking with Michelle Nishan, a chef whose commitment to local food has changed the way Americans eat. As commonplace as the farm-to-table movement is today, it might surprise you to learn that Michelle spent years lying to his patrons about where their food was coming from. It ate him up inside. But about 15 years ago, people's attitudes towards food changed, which, coincidentally, is roughly the same time he got involved with Paul Newman, Cool Hand Luke himself. As a financial backer, Paul pushed Michelle into the next phase of his career, 
CEO of Wholesome Wave, a nonprofit that uses food to benefit local economies and tackle poverty. He calls me one day and says, Michelle, it's Newman. I need you to come to the theater. So I go there and he's standing at the top of the stairs and you walk up to this little mezzanine where they let you into the theaters and he had two chairs facing each other and had somebody unscrew every light bulb in the ceiling except the one over the two chairs. <laughs> so he's like, have a seat. And we sit down just like you and I are across from each other. He's like, would you just please do this goddamn restaurant with me? <laughs> and by that time I had completely fallen in love with the guy and I said, okay. For the first time in my life, I had a restaurant where I didn't have to argue with anybody. We believed in the same things. And he's just one of the most humanly genuine people I had ever met. And it's one of the most valuable things I ever did in my life to be able to really go for something that I believed in with the support of somebody who believed in the same things, but then had proven himself beyond the wealth he was amassing because of his popularity and the way he just turned it back into philanthropic cause and trying to make change. So it was just an amazing thing. Well, that was only the beginning of what I suspect probably turned into the most rewarding thing for both you and Paul Newman, Wholesome Wave. Tell us about Wholesome Wave and the work you two did together on that. So it's interesting because when um, when we did the restaurant, I did have, you know, a couple of conditions. One condition was that my wife and my kids could eat there and that Lori could work there because that's how we met. We met in the business. And the other was that I, I was trying to do something about people in underserved communities, communities of poverty. I, I really believe that everybody should have a right to the same tomato or the same peach. Everybody should be able to deliver really great ingredients to their table, regardless of income. We used to be that way in this country. It used to be easy to do that. Um, and he said, well, sounds like a nonprofit to me. <laughs> 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 Why don't you just found the damn thing? So my feeling was all of this stuff that was getting bandied about and published back then because Kellogg Foundation had funded all of these farmers markets and underserved communities and they were failing without the grant money and a lot of people assumed that it was because of lack of demand or lack of education. I really felt that it was lack of affordability. So we decided the easiest way to prove whether there was a market or not was just raise private money and double the value of food stamps at farmers markets. So we started in late 2007. By early 2008 we were in three states and eight markets and it was taking off like wildfire. And within five years, we were in like 26 states, close to 300 markets, urban, rural, north, south, east, west, and collecting the stories and proving that consumers in poverty really are consumers, that they do want to feed their families better, that they just don't have the affordability. When we gave them the affordability, they would immediately shift the way they were spending their SNAP and then provide additional support to small and mid-sized farmers, which are classic American small businesses. And we measured that impact and we were able to share it in Washington and the farm bill that just passed has a hundred million dollars supporting that program now so we're very proud of that wouldn't have happened if Newman didn't say just like with the restaurant just like sounds like a nonprofit to me just get off your tuchus and do something about it well I have to tell you that personally that is one of the most brilliant pieces of work in food that I have seen in my lifetime and I have had 
a lot of up close and personal experience watching the success of that program. Because if I'm correct, Richard McCarthy at the Crescent City Farmers Market was one of your early adapters. Yeah, absolutely. They were, and they just hit it out of the park. And the, the interesting thing is we even learned from them on the evaluation because they were doing excellent evaluation. Richard's just one of the most brilliant guys in the, in the world. So they, they were doing, I, I believe, four markets, and we became really fast friends. I remember when Katrina happened, one of our donors the donor advisor that works with us said, listen, our anonymous donor wants to do something in the Gulf area. So, I mean, we could have come down here and done something, but what we did was we called Richard and said, hey, Richard, our donor wants us to do something. We'd rather you get the money, <laughs> you know? So how can we work together? We'll, we'll take out of the grant whatever it costs us to maybe fly down and have a couple of meetings, but you guys get the money and do something. So they, they created this thing for shrimpers to get into <laughs> farmers markets in communities get them away from the water get them away from the oil get them yeah get them to restaurateurs get them to see a show you know but let them the white food brigade yeah now, who do you think was head of the white food brigade me oh <laughs> awesome okay oh I didn't, that's awesome the, i didn't know that the white food brigade oh, didn't fabulous. go anywhere that i didn't go and in fact yeah. Alice was so wonderful and generous because she was part of our big hookup on the West Coast oh, when we took fabulous. the shrimpers to the West Coast. That was so that, you know, it's just brilliant, brilliant people out there. And that's how we work. We have a network of over 60 nonprofits that do the work. And now it leads to our other programs, which are, you know, you need those emissaries on the ground. We don't want to be the organization that goes to a community and hangs our shingle out the door so our nonprofit partners they call the program whatever they want the only thing we charge them is that they manage the alternative currency fraud free and they have to do the data collection so we can build the case for policy change you know whatever the hell you think is best for your community you've established the trust you've established the connection with the members in need they're going to trust you the best thing that we can do is just put a good idea in your hands and let you run with it and, and we're really proud of that my last question for you is, you've already proved yourself to be a visionary, a big thinker who thinks out the box and makes it happen. When you look in your crystal ball, what's the goal? What's going to happen next? What is your most outlandish dream for the future? Okay. So, well, first of all, if I had a crystal ball, I'd win the lottery. <laughs> uh, that would be awesome. Um, to me, it's less visionary than I think it's common sense. You know, my mom and dad were farmers, and, and I think all of the activity that we're seeing around these programs just really allows common sense to happen again. There's no such thing in my mind as any parent unless they really have a real psychological problem. There's no such thing as a parent who doesn't want the best for their family. We need to get the resources back in the hands of the family unit so that they have the resources to provide the best for their families. And I believe through doing that because it all has to happen through food. Food can save everything. Food can fix human health, environmental health, societal health, economic health. It's the building block of all culture. You know, fix food, you fix everything. And I believe it's these citizens of poverty that are going to be the heroes of our change food system. That's what I see for the future.
Thank you, Michelle. You are the best. I'm so grateful you took this time to yeah. sit down with us. Thank you. Oh, it's my pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you. <laughs> Michelle Nishan, CEO of Wholesome Wave. To learn more, visit wholesomewave.org. I'm Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats. Years before Michelle Nishan began a farm-to-table revolution, a small group called the Moosewood Collective, were challenging culinary conventions in Ithaca, New York. Winnie Stein has been a chef and member for over 35 years. During her tenure, Moosewood has grown from a small natural foods restaurant to a nationally acclaimed company, helping to bring vegetarianism into the mainstream. Winnie explained how the Moosewood Collective got its start. The Musa Collective is just our term for the group that manages and runs and writes the cookbooks. We started this business in 1973. It was a group of seven friends from the area. Uh, Ithaca has Cornell University and Ithaca College and a number of other colleges in the area. But in the early 70s, a lot of people migrated here for the so-called back-to-the-land movement. So a lot of people wanted to stay after college. So back to this group of seven friends, they loved to cook, they loved to eat, they had never run a restaurant and knew how to run a restaurant, but they decided to start a vegetarian natural foods restaurant in downtown Ithaca. The young collective, propelled by the idealistic 60s, ventured to turn the traditional restaurant management structure on its head. We really thought that we could create a restaurant management scenario where everybody would learn all the different jobs to run the restaurant. And in the beginning, everyone was trained to work in the kitchen, but not everybody loved it. And some people are better as servers, whereas if we took some of our cooks who are still here and put them as servers, we would probably be out of business because they cannot deal with people. <laughs> we after a time, realized that, you know, no, not everybody's suited for being a cook or being a server or being a manager, and people gravitated to jobs that they were more suited to. But by learning how to work every job in the restaurant, each member gained a clear understanding of how every aspect of the business worked. This came in handy when the original owners of Moosewood Restaurant decided to go their separate ways. When that first group of seven owners decided to move on and become lawyers and all kinds of serious people in the world. <laughs> uh, there were still some very early people who had been working at the restaurant who actually acquired it and then formed the Musa Collective. And in a sense, it was a way for everyone to have a voice and run the business. We started out very idealistic, trying to do something very alternative, and it did create a, a working environment where people took a lot of pride in creating this. At a time when the farm-to-table movement was still in its infancy, Moosewood was emphasizing nutrition and the importance of eating local through their restaurant menu and cookbooks. Well, I think we were one of the visionaries, honestly, about that, just trying to look at 
more healthful ingredients and eating closer to the source and understanding how to revamp some of the favorite recipes that people are handing down in their families that become, you know, part of whatever birthday celebration you're doing or a holiday celebration. We really try to take everyone's loved recipes from our own families, from our friends' families sometimes, and add back in the healthier ingredients that people could use, as well as looking at what could be maybe lower fat or, you know, watching not having too much dairy in in a lot of recipes. Because in the beginning, we just slathered everything with cheese and sour cream. And <laughs> after a while, we realized, wait a minute, that's not smart either. In 1996, the collective put all of these innovative recipes into a cookbook called Moosewood Restaurant, low-fat favorites, which would go on to win a James Beard Award for its focus on health. Altogether, five Moosewood cookbooks were nominated for James Beard Awards in the late 1990s and early 21st century, each one celebrated for their wholesome and creative culinary tips. I mean, what I think we're very proud of is we were one of the first people to be writing about and emphasizing using whole grains and whole foods and natural ingredients and looking to other cultures where it hadn't been sanitized, like the American culture in the 50s had sanitized a lot of the food. And what I mean by that is, you know, not having whole grains anymore in recipes or just using white flour or maybe just using white sugar. Not to say that sometimes that isn't the best thing to use in a recipe, but we really wanted to look at how could these recipes that we were sharing with people be much more helpful and uh, interesting. Since the 70s, the Moosewood Collective has published 14 cookbooks that have influenced generations of healthful eaters. When they celebrated their 40th anniversary, Winnie noticed changing attitudes among people who once shied away from their vision. I'm amazed how many people are still coming from all over the world, frankly, saying this is on their so-called bucket list. I don't know if I love that term. <laughs> but, <laughs> but coming because they've either been raised in our cookbooks or they've raised their children on our cookbooks or they've heard about us from a friend, people that probably 20 years ago would not have been interested in coming to Moosewood who are changing their diets and want to live longer and be healthier. So that's really interesting to me. It's more like the mainstream is. We were doing something which is very close to our own lifestyle. We didn't have grand visions for Moosewood in the beginning. This was truly a folk phenomenon. We credit our fans and all the people who supported us over the years with why we are where we are today. Winnie Stein, author, chef, and member of the Moosewood Collective. What does it really mean when food is certified organic? Stay tuned, and we'll answer that question when we come right back.
I'm Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with major support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen, Zatarans, and from French Market Coffee. French Market Coffee's premium blended beans are locally roasted in small batches, creating a coffee that can only be called New Orleans Old. This week's culinary quiz question, brought to you with support from Popeye's Louisiana Culinary Institute. What does it really mean when food is certified organic? In 1990, Congress enacted the Organic Food Production Act, which regulated organic production for the first time in the U.S. This congressional act was a long time coming. Back in the 1940s, J.I. Rodell, founder of the Rodell Research Institute, an organic farming and gardening magazine, was the main source of information regarding non-chemical farming methods. Not surprisingly, California farmers banded together in the 70s, creating the California Organic Farmers Certification in 1973. Other states followed in their stead, creating their own guidelines— until the Congressional Act brought the entire process under the control of the USDA. The National Organic Standards Board was formed to create the guidelines, and it took 22 years to get that accomplished. Now crops, livestock, processed foods, and wild crops are all eligible for the U.S. organic seal. But is it worth it? Many of the original organic farmers don't think so. They complained that their big mistake was making organic all about what not to do instead of what to do. And as so often is the case, bureaucracy added great cost to the certification. What originally was a $750 annual fee has skyrocketed in years to several thousand dollars. Consequently, many farmers now use organic methods but have foregone the certification process. That's why, organic or not, it's always good to know your farmer. Visit a farmer's market today and talk with the farmers to hear their point of view on organics. It's my guess you'll leave with an earful of knowledge and a basket full of delicious, organically grown produce. I'm Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats. A community garden can be so much more than a place to grow produce, and the 10,000 Gardens Project in Africa is living proof of that fact. As a young agronomist in Uganda, Edward Muchibi has sought to transform the food system by reestablishing community ties to the land. Now, as vice president of Slow Food International, Edward is making those ideals a reality. His continent-wide initiative cultivates community gardens while promoting agricultural sustainability. 
To bridge the gap between his project and American cities, Edward traveled across the U.S. with executive director of Slow Food USA, Richard McCarthy. They visited our studio while stopping in New Orleans. Edward arrived bearing good news from Africa. Many times uh, on the news, you hear about the atrocities in Africa. We hear about the hunger, the Ebola. We hear about the, all the, the problems, the war in Africa. And this is what many times comes to the media. But there is a lot of interesting, good things done by uh, young, young people in Africa who want to see a change in the face of the continent, who want to see the bright side of Africa being shared with other people, especially when it comes to food, environment, and agriculture. We are teaming up with the global food movement, with Slow Food International, to showcase the traditional agriculture, which is capable and uh, in good position to feed Africa for now and for the future. So these are like take an initiative of the 10,000 Gardens in Africa project supported by Slow Food International, started by us in Africa. Uh, it's not a project which was started in Italy. It was started from Uganda, Kenya. We went all the way to Tanzania, Morocco, Senegal, Mali, now in Nigeria, Somalia, even in very difficult places. People deserve the right to good, clean and fair food. And we need to defend our traditional food more than any other continent on earth. We need to defend our biodiversity as Africans more than anyone. And this uh, is the work which we do every day. And we need to build our communities around food, around our gastronomy, around environment, and build and be so innovative in our traditional farming systems. So who thought up 10,000 Gardens? And explain to us exactly how the 10,000 Gardens project works. The 10,000 Gardens in Africa idea was thought from the rural schools, like the schools where I went. It's a long history uh, of my childhood, which I share with many young people in Africa. I grew up in a farming family, and I went to school where something which I was proud of was a punishment. Farming was used as a punishment. If you do any wrong thing at school, like coming late, they send you to put down a bush, uh, put up a few crops for the teachers or for the school to sell and get revenue. And this scared many young people from farming. And um, this is something which didn't only happen in my school, but many schools in Uganda, many schools in East Africa, and maybe schools in other parts of Africa. And uh, I always had the desire to change this because I I, I was proud of my mom, proud of my family being farmers. And I went to the university and I chose to study agronomy, agriculture, land use, management. So uh, in 2006, I created a new school in my community, I created the the first school garden in my life. I I worked with kids of three to six years and many schools around, even those where I went and which were still using farming as a punishment, picked up the idea of letting kids decide what they want to do in the garden, not to force them. And the same work was going on in many parts 
of Africa, which we started connecting through uh, the Slow Food Network. When I joined Slow Food in 2008, I was invited to attend Terra Madre in Italy, this big Slow Food event, to share my ideas, to connect with a network of over a million activists worldwide who are promoting the same thing. And I realized I was not alone. We started talking to other people from other countries and the number of gardens started growing with the support of Slow Food. And when we talk about the 10,000 gardens in Africa, when someone talks about a garden, this is, uh, to many people, it's a place where you put seeds and harvest vegetables, you harvest stuff. But to us in Africa, there are learning spaces for families. There are places where families meet, discuss the future of food in the communities, discuss the future of our seeds. These are places where we have cross-generation knowledge transfer. And also, there are pillars on which we are building communities. There are pillars where uh, we are building the revolution to change the food system in Africa to a better system. And also, most importantly, these are symbols of resistance to the bad food system. They are symbols of resistance to monoculture, which is cropping up in Africa, promoted by rich, rich, big multinational corporations. And also these are pillars of uh, symbols of resistance to land grabbing, which mm-hmm. is the order of the day in Africa. Many rich corporations going through our local politicians are grabbing millions of hectares of farmland from poor African families claiming that the land is not utilized in the right way. But the right way to use this land is to cultivate communities, to cultivate gardens. Many times we have been lacking young and energetic leaders in Africa to take our continent forward in terms of food. But these are now the people we are cultivating in the gardens. Now we have many, many leaders. Every single garden has a leader. Well, you are so very fortunate in having such a good ally with Slow Food. And Richard, would you talk to us about how Slow Food figures into the 10,000 Garden Project and particularly focus on what it means to us here in the United States? Mm. Well, I think when you listen to Eddie's description of the culture of the 10,000 Gardens in Africa, what you I hear is that precarious, gorgeous balance between pleasure and social responsibility. And the, the balance between joy for food, for traditional foods, and also the justice around food. We felt that this story coming from Africa is so positive and so infectious that we wanted to share this good news coming from Africa with many of the young emerging food leaders in the most unexpected places in the United States. So when I think of so much of what I hear Eddie describe about the Gardens Project in Africa, I'm reminded of New Orleans and what role food and gardens have played to capture people's imagination, to rethink where we live, to honor tradition, and also to think very innovatively about where our food comes from, the new places that we can connect food and culture and economic opportunity, and move beyond that discussion that all solutions must go to scale. Move beyond the idea of just food security, access to fresh, healthy food, but go deeper to food sovereignty. When I think of how in New Orleans, much of the 20th century treated us, was that our food traditions are in the way of progress, that we must abandon them. And this 
deficit thinking, this kind of colonial thinking. We need to decolonize our minds and actually reconnect with those cultural assets that are our grandparents' recipes and, and harness those with so many of the new ideas that are springing up all over the United States. So many of these issues that are at the core of how we grow wealth and community in Africa are so much like the issues we face in the United States, but we're so divided by our narratives that we've got it figured out and the global south hasn't and we have to help them. No, what we just need to be able to provide is the space for them to grow their own future rather than intervening in their models. So the, the message, whether it's here or working with the Indian Springs Farmers Association in Mississippi where they're fighting heroically to save um, multi-generational black land or here in New Orleans or here in, or in Oakland is the idea that um, food is this extraordinary community connector and that we must harness this and share ideas globally. What is food sovereignty? Well, food sovereignty has really begun to capture the question that many local communities feel when they are being saved by outsiders and that outsiders are coming in with either supermarkets or, or policies to ensure greater food security. And food security is, is a belief system that we, we share, the, the access to safe, secure sources of food. But it matters where that food comes from. Because when you consider the precarious ecology of local economies, if that food that comes in to bring food security is dumped in a local market, then you undermine the ability of that local community to feed itself, mm -hmm. to grow its own wealth, to preserve its own traditions, to utilize its own traditional knowledge. And therefore, this idea of food sovereignty that we, in vulnerable communities, and especially in the U.S., communities of color, that are isolated from the mainstream food economy. And when the food economy comes, it comes to actually extract the wealth, not to grow it in the community. So the idea of growing local gardens, local stores, co-ops, farmers markets, CSAs, all these amazing new innovative institutions that are in some ways inventing old ones and reinventing them in a modern context help to bring food sovereignty. So the idea that food and democracy at their core must be tied together. What ultimately do you all hope to come out of this visit? Mm, that's a great question. We hope to educate Americans about Africa, to not to believe the, the hype that Africans cannot run their continent. They're perfectly capable of running it. The challenge is the political structures, the policies that um, we have in the U.S. There's some very good foreign aid programs. There's some very bad ones. We hope to inform American voters about these issues to be good citizens. We hope to create more international connections. Uh, in Detroit, the interest from the Detroit public school system was to create learning exchanges between African gardens and Detroit gardens. I would love to see that in New Orleans because certainly the impact, the African footprint on our food and culture and place is so essential. And to be able to, to keep that going would be the kinds of things that I think that at its core, that's what slow food is for, to bring people together and sometimes the most unexpected people together around food. Thank you. Thanks so much for coming. And what an honor and a pleasure to meet you, Eddie. Thank you. Thank you so much for 
being part of the great revolution. This is what we need to share our stories, our positive side of the coin. Thank you so much for the time. International Slow Food Vice President Edward Muchibi and Slow Food USA's Executive Director Richard McCarthy. That's it for this week's edition of Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Have you missed an episode of Louisiana Eats? Hear today's show or catch up on previous editions anytime online at itsneworleans.com. If you're not podcasting yet, it's time to subscribe. We've launched an exclusive podcast series, Louisiana Eats Quick Bites, made up of sneak previews of material that hasn't hit the airwaves yet and full-length interviews never heard on the show before. Visit our podcast page at poppytooker.com so you won't miss a single serving of our broadcast or our podcast. And give us a ring on our new committed phone line, 504-867-9128. We'd love to hear from you. Louisiana Eats is made possible with major support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen, Zatarans, French Market Coffee, Camellia Beans, and Rouse's Markets. Additional support for Louisiana Eats is provided by the shreveport Bossier Convention and Tourist Bureau and from Palace Cafe, home of the weekend jazz brunch featuring a build-your-own Bloody Mary bar located in the historic Whirline Music Building on Canal Street. Original theme music composed by David Pomerlo and performed by Johnny Sketch and the Dirty Notes. Big thanks to producers Joe Schreiner, Sarah Holtz, and Reggie Morris, and to our business manager and social media maven, Maddie Mulladu. Come visit us anytime in our Louisiana Eats studio at the Southern Food and Beverage Museum. Don't forget to find our recipes and see what we're up to at poppytooker.com. You can check us out on Instagram and Facebook, too. Louisiana Eats is a production of Poppy Tooker Broadcasting. <laughs>